message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. All right, let's get this turned on. You probably don't need it. My voice, uh, my voice carries enough as it is. Is that better? Can you hear anything? No. Nothing. No, we hear you. There it is. This isn't working at all, man. Is it? Come on, Phil. I'm just kidding. Is that better? Oh, there we go. I can hear myself. I can hear myself reverberate. Is that the right word? Reverberate. How's everyone doing this morning? Well, that's really loud. Good. I had some bacon this morning. I'm doing very well. I think I mentioned bacon in my last sermon. I enjoy bacon. It's very good. Um, before we pray real quick, uh, grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, shame. I'm just kidding. No, no shame. I'm just kidding. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn it to Acts 4.32 with me. So we've been going through Acts the last few weeks. Um, basically, we've been going uh, back and forth between Genesis and Acts. So uh, next week, we're going to be back in Genesis, I believe, right? Because this is going to kind of put an end to this section. So we're, we usually go by chapter in Acts. We're going to go through verse 11 and chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 32 in chapter 4, just because it's kind, of a, it's kind of like a section that just goes together. You can't really, you can teach one without the other, but it's kind of just easier to do it together. And so, uh, and I think to get Luke's point, we teach both sections, so we're going to go through verse 11. And uh, again, my name is uh, my name's Jeremy, if you all don't know. I think I know most of you guys. Uh, we've been back in Tennessee four months now. I've been here, what, two and a half months or so? So, yeah, so we're excited to be back. And I could say y'all again, and it's not really weird like it was in Delaware. So, all right, let's, uh, let's pray real quick. Father God, we come before you, and Father, we just... Um, are just in awe of, Father, just your, your grace and your holiness, and Father, just your patience in putting up with us. Father, I, we, don't have, uh, we don't have the ounce of patience that, that you have. Father, um, you look all throughout the Bible, and uh, you go from cover to cover, and it's just you being, being patient with your people, and it's you being just and, and judging as well, Father. Father, we, we deep down, we, we want justice when bad things are done. And Father, that's your holiness. And Father, we come before you this morning and we just ask to get a glimpse of you. Father, we ask that your name would be lifted high this morning, Father, that it would be exalted above all, uh, all little pet sins that we have. Father, that it would um, reign supreme in our hearts over other things that are taking the throne in our hearts, whether that's power, money, prestige, whatever it is, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would reign supreme, that your gospel would go forth, and, Father, that it would just bear much fruit. Father, we have the, the only message, Father, that, that does anything in, in eternity. We have the only message that matters uh, long term. And, Father, I just pray that we would just be faithful to, to be taking that to the world. 
Father, I just ask that your, um, I just ask the Holy Spirit would just speak through me this morning, just get me out of the way, and Father, just let this text be clear, and Father, just let it uh, apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts 4, 32. Let's read the whole section together, and then we'll kind of, um, we'll kind of just come in and out of it for a little bit. All right, so. Let's start, uh, I'm actually going to start in verse 31 because it kind of helps bookend this real well. kind of helps make sense of this. Adam preached on, uh, on this last week. All right, verse 31, chapter 4 of Acts. And when they had prayed, the place in which uh, they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, who was also called uh, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He's a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has, uh, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him, carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard of these things. Tough text. So uh, you've got a really good section starting out here, you know, Acts 4. Uh, a lot of parallels with Acts 2, which we'll go back to here in a minute. So uh, you've got the early church, they're together. And if you're, you're taking a look at, at Acts, just think of it as a continuation of Luke. So same part, Luke's writing the same person, he's writing to Theophilus. So he's trying to get the same point across. He's presenting us a history of what actually happened in the church. So this, this verse in, uh, in, of Ananias and Sapphira, it actually happened. It's a history. And so uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they lied and they were, they were struck dead because of it. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Um, it's one of those verses that's... Uh, you kind of Acts one through four is kind of you know it's kind of building up, and then all of a sudden Acts five hits, and you're like, "Well, this is different." Um, so let me let me ask you something. So uh, I want to ask kind of a, a question to start off. So 
don't know if you guys have ever heard this or how long you all would say if you've been Christians or you've ever heard this. Have you ever heard people say you want to go back to being a, a and going back to the early, you want to go back to be like, you want your church to be the early church. You want your church to be like an, an old-fashioned, you know, Bible-preaching church. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Bible-preaching is fantastic. Um, I'm sort of old-fashioned in some ways, I guess. Um, but have you ever heard people say, you know, we want to go back to be like this? You know, it's usually like circa 1950. You know, it's like, let's break out the, again, nothing wrong with it, but let's break out the pop organ. And uh, let's, uh, let's have a really crazy-looking carpet. And... Uh, my point is, is um, even with the New Testament, there's a lot of sin in the church. There's still a lot of sin uh, today. And so when people look at the church, and you can especially get this from unbelievers, and they just don't, they don't see this, is the church is not perfect. We're, we're being perfected, but, but we're not perfect. Um, I think we have unity um, in Christ, and uh, I think that um, a lot of times our, our focus gets on other things. It gets on, like I, like I was praying, money, prayer, uh, money, uh, power, prestige. We start taking our eyes off Christ, and things start falling apart. And that's what you see with Ananias and Sapphira here. Um, there was a, uh, I don't know if you guys like church signs or not. I love to read church signs. I find them fascinating. I was reading a blog by this uh, um, Ed Stetzer's his name. He works at uh, he works with Lifeway, and um, he has uh, he had this church sign, and I couldn't help I couldn't help but as I was looking at it, I was like, this will go great. This will go great when I'm introducing this Sunday morning because I was like, this this kind of fits with it. This church is a church. Uh, I'm not going to name the church or anything, but it's it's a church in, in Kentucky, and uh, this is the this is the uh, I don't know if you call it a mission statement. I guess this is the theme of their church. Uh, quote, what a good Baptist church used to be, we still are. <laughs> and so what they're meaning is they're meaning, let's go back to the 40s. Let's go back to the 30s. Let's go back, and if, if we go back in time, it was more holy then, it was more pure then, then the church will be better than it is now. And that's, we know that's not true. The church has always been imperfect. It's, it's literally, this is God's family here on earth, but, but we're imperfect. So, I mean, even going back to, uh, even going back to the 1950s or the 18, and then people in the 1950s are like, let's go back to the 1890s. People in the 1890s are like, let's go back to the 1850s. Let's go back to the 1810s. And then they're like, let's go to America and start a new church and uh, start, a, you know, this is God's chosen land here in America. Let's start, let's start a church doing that. The other sign, by the way, in case you're interested, says you may, uh, the other sign I liked, you may party in hell, but you'll be the barbecue. I thought that was a good one, too. <laughs> I, really, I really liked that one. That has nothing to do with this morning. I just wanted to share it with you because I liked it. So we, we, we don't want to just necessarily go back in time, but we do want to take a look at the church. We do want to take a look here at Acts. I think Luke is telling us something that we can kind of, we can kind of take away and look here. So think of, this, think of this section in two sections. You've got verses 32 through 35. You see the church has got a lot of things in common. The church uh, is, is being centered around the gospel. You see uh, they're giving their things away voluntarily. Then you've got Barnabas, the next two verses in 36 and 37. And Barnabas is being put up as basically he is the, the anti-Ananias and Sapphira. He's being held up by Luke as the guy we want to be. So it's like, be like Barnabas. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. And then you've got this section in uh, 1 through 11 of chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for their sin. So that, that's kind of, kind of an overview of it. So let me, let me kind of tell you what I'm getting at this morning. So uh, unity is at the very center of God's plan for his church. 
We're united in Christ. That's the very center. If you get nothing else this morning, we are united in Christ with one another, even when we screw up and we mess up and we're going to. So Luke gives us some examples to learn from. Think of these as true, these are true historical things that happened, and Luke put them in here to give us an example to follow and to not follow. So look back with me in, uh, look back with me in, um, go to Acts 2. Turn this like two, three pages before that. Adam taught on this, gosh, this has been like a month and a half or two ago. This is the third time I've taught out of Acts already. This is kind of funny. This is like the, the one another statements in the community. I'm, I'm starting to be that guy. I'm just teaching on it all the time. So look at the language here. The language is extremely similar. So let's, let's take a look at a few key words. So in, in 242, and you can kind of see how it's similar to, um, to the last section, chapter 4, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, so very similar to chapter 4, to breaking of bread and to prayers. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Just like Acts 4, right? And day by day they attended a temple together. They broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then you go, to, you go back to uh, verse 32. So they're one heart, one soul. I kind of, I, I think... Uh, I think Luke kind of knew his Old Testament a little bit. I think he's going back to Deuteronomy 6, 5, where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think what he's getting at is they're, they're kind of fulfilling it. I think what he's, because he quotes Deuteronomy again here in a few minutes. Uh, I think what he's getting at is they're, they're fulfilling loving their neighbor and loving Christ. No one had, uh, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. Um, now, go to verse 34 with me. I want to show you one more thing before we kind of pull a few things out of this. This is amazing. There was not a needy person among them. That's a big statement. I think, uh, I think it's very hard to say um, that there's not a needy person in your church. There's always somebody needy. But apparently they were giving away so much, there wasn't a needy person around. And again, Old Testament, Deuteronomy 15.4 um, says, be there, uh, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. I think what Luke's getting at here is the church is kind of fulfilling what the, the Jews in the Old Testament didn't fulfill. So the Jews entered the land and there wasn't any among them. And I think what he's saying is we are fulfilling. Um, we're fulfilling this. We are actually making sure there's no needy people among us. We're fulfilling what the, the Jews couldn't do. So one thing I want us to get this morning, and I want to kind of show you a couple of ways, uh, a couple of ways to think about this. So they had unity in Christ. Why did they have unity in Christ? I think um, we want to take. I want to take a look at, at Luke as, as a whole. I want to take a look at uh, take a look at Luke and Acts as a whole, and I think Acts two gives us a lot of, of insight here, along with with verse thirty three and chapter four. Um, I think what's interesting is they, they, they understood the gospel and they understood the implications of the gospel. The gospel isn't just, uh, I think I mentioned this last time, I think I have to in Tennessee just because it's something we struggle with. The gospel isn't something that you just believe. These, you know, the, like right when you become a Christian, like right when Jesus saves you from your sins, it's not like here's the gospel, you know, I'm 38 years past the gospel, I don't need it anymore. It's like, no, here's the gospel and here's you. 
Like you take the gospel with you. Like the gospel goes with you. The gospel has implications to live out. The gospel isn't just like, hey, I'm a Christian now. I'm going to live any way I want. And the gospel is somewhere back here. It's like the gospel is going with you. So they understood the implications of the gospel. Um, I think they understood three kind of implications of it. I think they understood that it, it changes us from the inside out. I think it... it um, I think they understood that um, there's kind of a before and an after aspect to the gospel. Like, we are saved right now, but we're, in the, we're also in the process. I mean, we are, uh, we're being sanctified every day. Scripture tells, the Bible tells us we're sanctified. It means that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. It tells us we already are, but we're not quite there yet. Hang around a Christian long enough and you'll figure that out, right? So, because uh, we screw up too, we mess up too. Uh, and I think it turns the value system of the world upside down. So I think it turns everything upside down. I think it changes us from the inside out. And I think that there's a, there's a before and after aspect they got. And I think because they got this, it leads them to a community of people who are willing to sacrifice, suffer for one another, put up with each other, even amidst all their faults and troubles. And um, there's another word I'm looking for, faults, troubles, and... Uh, all that other bad stuff. I don't know. I'm trying to use another word there. So um, I like this quote by A.W. Tozer. I think this quote helps us this morning. Um, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They were of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but by another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be if they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. Did you catch that? So they're, they're tuned to another standard which each one must individually bow. So basically... Um, I guess what I'm trying to tell you, and I think it's what this text is ultimately trying to say too, if, if we just seek after unity for unity's sake, it's not going to come. Unity comes as the Spirit is fed within us, as we feed the Spirit. You know, when you, when you read your, your Bible in private, it's not just you reading your Bible. It's you building up the community that you're a part of. It's literally the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to take that, and He's going to be able to apply it. And there may be a verse that uh, you know off the top of your head that you can apply to someone else's situation. So there's a standard. If we're, if we're looking towards Christ, if we get the vertical part, if we get the vertical part of our relationship down, the horizontal with each other kind of, it kind of just takes care of itself. As, as we start to become enamored with Christ and with what, he done for, what he's done for us and with the gospel, you start seeing changes in your life. I mean, you start, I mean if you think about the, the gospel and how radical it is, you start seeing humongous changes that take place if this is true. So, um, so how, does, how does this church have this kind of unity? I don't think... Um, I don't think, again, I don't think you get this unity by just looking for it. And what's amazing about this church, what I found fascinating about this church, this church came from all over. This church was uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural. Uh, this church wasn't just uh, one group of people that, you know, kind of came from within a three-mile radius in like a little small town, you know, that all listened to like Leonard Skinner and, and uh, you know, Eight Biscuits and Gravy. Like this was a group of people who were part of, uh, they were part of different, you've got cultures clashing, you've got people clashing. Acts 2, 9, and 11, Pentecost, it tells us they were from all over the place with, with big cultural differences. It says, um, 
It said there that um, they came from different parts. There was, I think there were seven or eight listed all total. And this, this is the church that he's talking about. This church had unity, not in the fact they had hobbies in common, not in the fact that uh, you know, they may share the same passion for something. They may, uh, may have the same personality type. Uh, they shared, what, what they shared in common was Christ. So when we look at the church, we look at this church, think multi-ethnic, multicultural. And um, there is no white, there is no black, there is no rich, there is no poor. There's the church. And there's the church loving one another. So uh, the, the text says um, Parthians, Medes, uh, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Yankees, Southerners. You can, you can put them together in a church. Now you'll have a few little things here and there, but you can do it, right? You, could, you can put them in a church and there's unity in Christ. So they understood the gospel and the implications of the gospel. So Jesus did three things in the gospel. Now we can tell the story a few different ways, but you gotta get, I think you've got to get three things clear about the gospel in order to have unity like this. He came down, he became man. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place. He's resurrected. He's reigning. He's going to return, and he's going to rule. It's a lot of R's. He's going to return. He's going to rule. He came down. He became man. Lived a perfect life, and he died for us in our place on the cross. I think that's where unity is found in Christianity, and I think it's where it's found here. Um, if you read through, read through Luke and Acts, read them back-to-back sometime or on back-to-back days, and you start seeing Luke have a theme here of... Um, of telling Gentiles basically that the kingdom's coming, and you start seeing that basically the gospel has huge ramifications for how we live with one another. So upside down, I said upside down earlier. So what do I mean by upside down? So Jesus' kingdom turned the world upside down. Think of the think of of what Jesus did. He reversed the values of the world. If you take a look at the gospel, this isn't you know we're not talking pull yourself up by your your bootstraps. We're not talking about uh, become a better person. When we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about it changes our desires within us. It gives us a desire that we didn't have earlier. Now, here, here's the beauty, of, here's the beauty of, of thinking this way, thinking upside down. Jesus, who was a king, Jesus, who was a king, is a king, he became a servant, right? It says he became a servant. He didn't conquer by military might or power. They thought he was going to conquer, you know, they thought he was going to conquer by military might. He conquered by dying, by being a sacrificial, a sacrificial servant on the cross. So Jesus kind of turned the value system of the world upside down. His kingdom's values are different than this world's values. So looking back at our text, you know, you kind of see that makes sense. You know, why are they, why are they giving everything to the apostles to distribute? Why are they giving everything to their leaders to distribute? Because Jesus turned the world upside down. They have new hearts. That's the gist of Christianity. They have new hearts, and because Jesus turned their world upside down, they're willing to sacrifice and go out and basically live, live out the Christian life. It's, it's, it's easy when Jesus has turned your value system upside down. If, you're, if your values as a Christian are completely 100% on board with the world's values and what the world tells you to be, then you've missed the boat. You've, you've missed the boat. If you're seeking power, prestige, and um, fame, status, if you're seeking that stuff just like an unbeliever does, you, you've missed the boat. Jesus' kingdom is meant to turn our values upside down, and it does. Think about the Beatitudes. What, what does it say in the Beatitudes? You've got the Sermon on the Mount. You've got the meek, 
I was told, I was told Garrett, I, we have a friend named Garrett, I was told him, it's like Garrett Meek will inherit the earth. Uh, his last name's Meek, so yeah, I, was, I always got a kick out of that. Help me remember the verse. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth, right? Meek are going to inherit the earth? I thought Donald Trump was going to inherit the earth. You know? Don't big powerful guy, but it says the meek's going to inherit the earth. Why? Because they're trusting in Jesus. They're trusting in Christ. The first will be last. The last will be first. The poor, down, the poor broken, downtrodden are going to be lifted up. So Jesus' kingdom, you literally have a changing of values. You have, a, you have a unique value system that's pretty much exclusive to Christianity because every other religion you go to in the world is going to tell you, do these things, get this at the end, at the end of the day. Do this, uh, do this, you get this. So the implications of the gospel they were living out is Jesus, because of Jesus' death, they were serving one another. Jesus came to serve. They served. They start serving one another. Um, they serve one another in a community that's centered on, go back to Acts 2, it's centered on the apostles' teaching. So it's centered on the word. It's centered on teaching. It's centered on, on the word for them. They're sharing their possessions. They're breaking bread together. Um, I think what we see here is just a complete opposite of what we see in the world. Yeah, we've got a lot of social clubs in the world, um, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. You know, clubs don't have the Holy Spirit to, uh, you know, you can have a softball team. I like softball, not as much as baseball, but I like softball. Um, you know, you can have a softball team, but when somebody gets mad at one another, unless those two people are Christians, you're not going to, to get a lot of forgiveness. You're not going to, uh, unless they understand the gospel, you're not going to have the Holy Spirit at the back of their head telling them that they need to forgive like Christ forgave them. So um, it turned the world upside down. So we look at these verses and, and you see here that it's upside down. It's, it's, a different, it's a different kind of value system. It's also inside out. Um, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of and I, I hate this, but it's, it's just a fact, we have a lot of, um, some churches do this, um, all other religions do this. Obey this set of rules. It's, it's inside out. Change is inside out. Um, if our change is outside in, we're always worried about if we're doing enough to make God happy with us. Are we... Better are we, you know, living holy enough today so that God can be happy with me? Or did Jesus give me a new heart? Did Christ die in my place? And is God already happy with me? Therefore, I go and live the Christian life. See the difference? It's a huge, it's a huge difference in the Christian life. Because if, if it's outside in, you're always going to be worrying about whether what you're doing is pleasing God. But if Jesus pleased God for you, you obey him because you get to, because God gives you the, God literally gives you the ability to. I mean, it, it's like, it's like, basically, you have the ability now through the Spirit to obey God. It's like a, it's like an overflow, as opposed to, uh, you know, worrying about God condemning you. So, you've got, um, you know, the Pharisees in that day. Luke, Luke goes uh, on about the Pharisees several times. They were, they were wanting change from the outside in. Um, we see in Luke uh, eleven thirty nine through forty one. The Lord said to him, You Pharisees clean the outside of your cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not him who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. See, again, it kind of goes together because it kind of changes the value system again, remember? It's not outside in anymore like every other religion and, and Pharisees would tell you. It's, it's inside out. New heart. Think Jeremiah 31. We have a, we're given a new heart, and the new heart allows us to, to obey and go out. And 
that's how they can live in community with one another. They're changed from the inside out. Their values are different. They've been changed from the inside out. They're not concerned about, you know, whether, uh, whether or not they're looking better than the next person over to them. They're just basically concerned about what God's done for them, and they're, it's overflowing in their, in their actions, right? And you've got, I mean, you've got Barnabas. Barnabas is kind of an example of verse 36 and 37. He's just basically, Barnabas is the, uh, I always call Barnabas the, uh, the teller to uh, Penn. Penn and Penn teller of the comedic team. Like, he's like, Paul, Paul and Barnabas for me, like Penn and Teller. Like, Paul gets all the publicity because he's a big, tall guy that talks. And, and like, Barnabas is like quietly serving, doesn't speak. I always think of, I always think of Penn and Teller. If you know who Penn and Teller is, look it up. It'll, it'll help you with the analogy. There's also a forward back. There's also a kind of a kind of like a, a already not yet like a forward back aspect of the gospel. I think they're getting, and this uh, look at verse 33 with me. I think this is real important for us to get. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So they're giving their testimony to the the what the resurrection. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. So. Basically, they realized that their stuff in the grand scheme of eternity was just that. It's stuff. It's nice to have a house. It's nice to have cars. I like to drive and not ride a horse or walk. So it's nice to have a car. But, you know, I was talking with uh, Lindsay. We're looking at buying a house right now. And um, it kind of hits me every now and then. Uh, I don't know why I do this. Sometimes you just think in a lot of eternity, and even with buying a house, you know, we were talking the other day that uh, my house will probably live on after I die. And then 100 years from now, my house is gone. Maybe 100 years, unless it's you know, built really nice, unless it's like brick, and, and you know, they, they do a really good job laying the foundation. It's probably going to be gone, and there'll probably be uh, something else in its place. Donald Trump's third grandson will have built a, you know, a community center or something there. So... Uh, you know, thinking a lot of eternity, this stuff is just stuff. Our house, at the end of the day, what should our house do? Our house should be used to, to entertain Christians around us, to, to be a part of our community. It should be used for eternal, eternal purposes. It should be used for big picture things, you know? Because one day we're all going to die, and then that house that we're so consumed about or this job that we're so consumed about, they're so small in the grand scheme of things. So they, they realize their stuff's just stuff, um, they evangelized in this section. They're literally warning people about the judgment that's to come. That if, if you get the gospel, you realize there's a coming, there's a coming judgment. We see this, uh, we'll see this in a minute with Ananias and Sapphira. But think about, think, what's the opposite of this? Live for today, don't think about tomorrow. Seize the day. Don't think about tomorrow. Um, pay, you know, don't think about, don't think about your eternal state. Think about what you're going to do tomorrow. You know, do think what you're going to do tomorrow. But also, Think about your eternal state. I think that changed the church. And I think if, I think at the end of the day, in this section, if how can a church so young, because this church is very young, very diverse, how can they have this unity? I think it's the unity is in Christ and it's given through the Spirit. So I think it's in Christ given to us through the Spirit. It turns our values upside down. It changes us inside out. And we realize there's a coming, there's a coming reckoning, there's a coming day. Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection, right? So what do we take away from this first section? Before we get to Ananias and Sapphira, what do we take away from this first section? I think that if we want to grow as, as a church uh, deep, 
deep uh, and, and numerically. If, we, if we're going to look at growing, I think we need to learn to rely on the Spirit to give us that unity. I think we need to keep in step with the Spirit, so to speak. I think we need to be feeding the Spirit and not feeding our flesh. Um, it does us no good to grow numerically if we have no unity. If we have no unity, we, we just show Knoxville that we're just, you know, like any other church that hates each other, hates each, uh, hates each other, doesn't, or just sees each other on Sunday mornings and doesn't want to be a part of each other's lives any other time. And I don't think that's what Knoxville needs from us. Um, and it's just not appealing. It's not appealing to an unbeliever if they, can, if they walk in here and we're not different, if we're not changed. If this is just, you know, Christ isn't raised from the dead... Why are we meeting? We're most of all we're of all men most to be pitied, right? We're here because Jesus is resurrected, reigning, ruling. I think true union in Christ, uh, the church looks like God's kingdom as well. We we are proud of the fact that people come from every tribe, tongue, language, nation. God is God is spreading the gospel in Africa and China right now while it's waning in America. You know? If it wanes in America, God's, God's always saving the people. So I think something we can take away from this is um, we want our church, we want to welcome everybody. There is, no, there is no racism or there is no rich poor looking down on people within the church. Okay, so that's the good example. So that was the good news first, right? We've got the good news out of the way. Now, unfortunately, we've got some, some bad news. I think we can learn from the bad news, but we do have bad news too. So let's take a look at this. Go, go, with, me to verse, uh, go with me to chapter 5. This is kind of a scary story. Um, you know, Char- Charles Spurgeon, who has written more than any human being on the face of the earth, written ever as a, as a preacher. Like, he, he, he's written more than anyone ever. Has 66 volumes of sermons. Unbelievable. 66 volumes. He didn't do this verse. He didn't go, that's why I like going verse by verse. He didn't go verse by verse through sermons. He kind of skipped around. Beauty of going verse by verse is you can't skip over stuff. It makes you talk about uncomfortable things that I think God wants us to talk about. But Spurgeon didn't preach on this, and I was kind of amazed by that. Um, so, scary story. Um, so you've got Ananias, you've got his wife Sapphira. Ananias uh, basically had sold a piece of property, right? So imagine you or I, we sell a piece of property. Now... This was voluntary, just like in Acts 2. This isn't like some form of communism where it's like coerced, you know, it's forced us into doing this. This is voluntary, I think, like I was saying a minute ago, because they understood the gospel. This was a voluntary act that they wanted to do to serve. So Ananias didn't have to do this. He wanted to do it, though. So he sold the property. He took the money to Peter. Now, Catch this. this. His sin was not, uh, his sin was not um, doing this and holding back the, the, the money. It was, it was the lying that took place. It was, the sin was he was wanting to make himself look more spiritual and look better than what he actually was. He wanted to be like Barnabas. He wanted to be like the other believers that were doing this. The problem was is he wasn't doing it and he was lying about it. Um, I like, I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a, a pastor in London, I like what he said about, about this section. Um, he said, I claim the Bible is the most honest book in the world. Do you get honesty in your newspapers? And he wrote this about 40 years ago. Nothing's changed. Do you believe what you read? Reporters and editors have completely lost all sense of proportion. The television is the same. What is greatness? It's very difficult to tell judging by the things that are reported from week to week. Everything is painted up, idealized, beautified, and you do not have the truth. 
you do not get the truth about men and women in your newspapers and in your secular history books. There's a bias. They're covering over special pleading. But there's nothing like this in the Bible. This book will tell you more against the Christian church than you have ever imagined, uh, that you have ever imagined or would think of. It is a book you can trust. It's not here to wheedle you. It's here to give you a message that is of vital import to your soul and your eternal destiny. And I think that I think this story here is like the it's like the antithesis. It's the opposite of the last story. This story is meant as kind of a, a real history lesson for us. It's meant as an example. I think this is meant as an example for us. So, what is the problem with Ananias and Sapphira? What's the sin that, that, that they're doing here? That they committed here? They love their money. I think you see that they love their money. They love their money more than they love their community. They loved their things more. Um, the other believers were giving their money and their possessions away freely, and they were holding it back. No, the sin was not holding it back. The sin was lying about it and showing yourself better. But they, they had a love of money that was there. They had a love. Remember we were talking about earlier, I think their, their value system was flip-flopped. I think their value system was the world's. They lied about how much money was made on the field. Um, like I said, they wanted themselves to look better than they were. They gave a false impression of themselves. So... This, this sin was kind of against God. It's kind of against the community, too. It's kind of, um, it's kind of a sin against both. It's, it's God that he lied to, and, and the sin um, uh, kept uh, the word keep back there, I believe it was in verse 3. It's kind of a way of saying this is a sin against the community as well. Um, one person shared this, this. This was amazing to me, and I think this has a lot of application for us. One, one person I was reading, one commentator, he, he said, we share Ananias' sin when others think that we're more spiritual than what we are. When we try to make others think, uh, by trying to make others uh, think that we're more spiritual than we are, examples of Ananias' sin today include creating the impression we're people of prayer when we're not. By the way, when I read this, I think we'll all find ourselves somewhere on here. So creating the impression we're people of prayer when we're not, making it look like we have it all together when we don't, it's the sin of promoting the idea that we are generous when we are so tight that we squeak when we smile. Misrepresenting our spiritual effectiveness. And he says, for example, when I was at the crusade in New York, I ran the whole follow-up program when in actuality you were a substitute counselor. When a preacher urges his people towards deeper devotion to God, implying that his life is an example when in actuality he knows it is not, he's repeating Ananias' sin. When an evangelist calls people to holy living but is secretly having an affair with his secretary, he is an Ananias. This gives us a lot to think about if we dare. So when we are putting on a show for fellow Christians, people around us, to make, to make them think that we are more holy or more, you know, more spiritual than what we actually are, we're committing the sin that Ananias committed. That's kind of terrifying. God... Um, God struck Ananias dead for that. I mean, we, we should praise God for his patience with us that he has uh, given and taken us this far. And we, we, I, that's, I think it's something that we do often. You know, it's like somebody comes to us with an idea. We might not have, you know, we might not have, like, the knowledge of the Bible to explain it. And we kind of try to anyway just because, you know, other people can. And that uh, we want to look good for the group. So I think we can all relate to this, and I think we've all lied just so somebody could think highly of us or think better than better of us than, than what we are. Um, so this is a tough situation, and, and you, you take a look at it, and you see, 
You see Ananias's sin. It says Satan filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for himself part of the proceeds of the land in verse 3. And what's funny is all the verses preceding this, people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, people are filled with, uh, you know, you've got Pentecost, you've got preaching, you've got being filled with the Spirit. Now it says they're being filled, uh, there's someone within the church being filled, Satan is filling their heart to sin. So, well, I found, I was just thinking, I was just thinking about this. What's fascinating about this is, think back to creation. What happened, and, and we're going through, you know, creation right now. We're going through gen, the first part of Genesis. What happens in Genesis with the serpent? What, does, what is Satan doing? He's trying to undermine God's, God's plan. He's trying to undermine God's place, God's people. He's trying to undermine all that. Now, what's he do the second he gets a chance with Jesus? He wants to do it with Jesus. He takes Jesus out. He tempts Jesus and the devil. He wants, to, he wants Jesus to, to bow down. He wants Jesus to back off what he's doing. What does he do when the church first gets started? The same exact thing. He is trying to attack, since he can't do it from without the church right now, because the church is growing so much, he's doing it from within the church. So I think we've got to keep, uh, I think we have to keep uh, watch. I think we have to keep watch that this doesn't happen to us, that we don't become a, a groaner and a complainer. We love one another, and that the, the love of Christ is kind of showing in our, our lives. We're letting the Spirit fill us and not in our flesh. Um, so even though this is a tough situation, even though this is really hard, it has, it has a purpose to it. And that purpose is an example for us. You know, Hebrews has several warning passages about, not that I believe you can fall away, but it has warnings about falling away. Don't fall away. Do this. I think this is telling us the same. I think this is putting up Barnabas. And it's putting up the early Christians. This is the example of, of what you're supposed to look like. You're supposed to have unity in Christ through the gospel, through the spirit. So the unity... We have unity in that. We don't want to be like Ananias and Sapphira. We actually can disarm the unity of the church when we're trying to pretend to be something that we're not, like Ananias was. Because remember, it wasn't Ananias' sin. It wasn't that uh, he withheld. Uh, I mean, uh, he withheld, but the, the, the sin was as it was a voluntary action. He was trying to make himself look better than what he actually was. It was a sin against the community, against God. So even though it's a tough situation, God uses it to, to spread the gospel. Look at, look at verse 32 with me. We're going to read this, this last section real quick. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I messed up right there. Uh, 5 verses 12 through 16. So continue on after Ananias and Sapphira, what do we see that's, that's uh bracketed here. So now many signs and wonders were being regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest there joined them but the people held them in high esteem. More than ever believers were added to the Lord multitudes of men and women so that, even, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. These people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick, those afflicted with unclean spirits, and all those who were healed. And this is right after verse 11 where it says, great fear came upon them all. So a great fear of God. God literally took this and saved people through it. Took this and used this um, as a motivator for the church. Imagine being the person that was standing there when Ananias was struck dead. I mean, doesn't tell us whether it was a stroke, whether his heart just stopped. I mean, we, we don't know. But just imagine standing there and this guy just, just dies right in front of you, what that does. Um, I think that tells us God takes sin very seriously when we're sometimes 
calloused or lackadaisical about it. Um, and I also think it tells us that God can use bad things. God uses bad things every day and turns them around for good. Um, a couple things I want to draw from this. This, this, is, this is the end. A couple things I want to, I want to draw from this. Um, I love I loved, uh, I loved reading this quote by Spurgeon. Um, he said, uh, if you ever find, because this is something we, we do here, um, if you ever find a perfect church, don't grace them with your presence. You'll you'll ruin it. I kind of like that because you know we, we're always spent we're always spent looking for the perfect church. Um, and you know we live in America where there's nothing wrong with you know buying and selling. It's fine, but we live in kind of a uh, we live in a culture where we shop. We shop for things. You know we go on Amazon. I love Amazon. We go on Amazon. We look for things. Uh, we're constantly trying to find the next best thing. You know, two years from now, oh, our, our cell phone is so old it only you know operates way faster than every other cell phone in existence ten years before it. Uh, we had to have a new cell phone. Uh, we're always shopping for things. We start doing that with Christianity too. It, it's it's came over into the church. We start shopping for churches. We start looking at what church is gonna. What's this church gonna do for me? Does this church have this? Does this church have this? Does this church have this? I think the question's backwards. I think the question is is where can I plug in and use my gifts to serve those around me? I think that should be the question. And I think if our value system is turned upside down, I think that if if we have kingdom ethics, kingdom values as opposed to the world's values, I think that's the question we ask. And if our hearts change from the inside out, I think that's the question we ask. Because God puts us around each other. You're going to, you know, like two stones, you're going to kind of soften over the years. But there are people with rough edges, and you're going to have a hard time. You forgive them, you move on. Um, so I think, I think what this says to us is... Um, let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me ask, let me ask you a question. So are you letting God's word, God's community, the breaking of bread, like in Acts 2, having all things in common, are we letting it change us or are we just going through the motions? Is church just something we do on Sunday or is this, does this mean anything in the grand scheme of things? I think our answer tells us if we're, if we're living inside out or outside in with the gospel. How easy are you at forgiving those in community around you when they screw up? I promise, you know, going back to what I said earlier when I was kind of introducing everything, I promise the early church stunk at things too. I mean, you had people in 1 Corinthians that were getting drunk eating the Lord's Supper. Um, you had a lot of bad things going on. But Paul can still tell them, Paul can correct them and still tells them that he loves them. Um, I think you can forgive people of, of great sins when you realize that you've been forgiven of great sins. So how, how forgiving are you? How judgmental are you? Again, that's a sign of whether your, your value system's turned upside down or whether you're living inside out or outside in. Do you cultivate time with God to fix your eyes on Him and maintain this unity? Unity is it like A.W. Tozer said earlier, I completely agree with this. If we seek after unity for unity's sake, it's not going to happen. Unity is, is in Christ through the Spirit, reminding us of the, of the gospel, of what Jesus did for us, Jesus' person his work what he done for us so at the end of the day here's what i would say if you leave with one thing here's what i would say unity is in christ we're going to mess up we're going to screw up um i think what we take away from for ananias and sapphira is we need to be honest with each other we need to be open and honest as we're a a church fellowship and community with one another we need to be open and honest about our flaws and our sins 
And uh, I also think the first part that we can kind of look at it, we can, if, we if our value system is truly changed, if our hearts are truly changed, it changes how we live Christianity. I've said that, I think, ten different ways this morning because it's, it, that's the point of this text. It's so important. If we get those two things, it changes us. So as we go, as we go into communion, as we go into uh, the, the Lord's Supper, this is, the Lord's Supper is something that's meant to unite us. It's something that's meant to remind us of the broken, broken body and the blood that was spilled of, of Jesus. So as we go into this, I want us to kind of just take a few, just take a minute or so, and just think through, you know, implications of the gospel. Are, are our hearts, are we inside out or outside in? I find mine often outside in so much more than I do inside out, so much more than I find myself wanting to work for my salvation as opposed to just accepting it. So think through that, and um, let's take communion together this morning, and let's keep worshiping.